Well, good morning. If I'm uh, catching you online, we are glad to get to be with you. Those of you in the room, it's great to be with you this uh, Sunday morning. This is uh, the kickoff of our new series of our new year as we've been reading through the Bible for one week. We are one week in. I don't know how you're doing, but whoop, whoop, one week in. First week down. Check. Um, We've had the conversation, one of the things we're going to be doing, as you know, is, is we're going to be preaching each Sunday out of one of the texts that, you know, we, we read this past week. And I had a couple of people say, hey, any chance we could just shout out, like, which passage we'd like to have preached on Sunday morning or take a vote, you know? We are not going to be doing that, just so you know. So you can put your tallies down. It's just not going to happen that way in particular. But really glad to be with you all. Um, this morning, uh, we've, this past week, we've been able to go from Genesis 1 all the way to, to Genesis uh, 24 and read through Psalm 1 through 7. It's been pretty fantastic. Uh, so excited about jumping in this particular Sunday. Um, the first sentence of any book tells you a lot about where this book is going. The first line in some books actually makes them almost famous. So I'm going to do a little bit of a quiz. You can play along at home, of course, too, of which books are the first line from I'm going to give you the first line. You tell me which books it's from, okay? There's no prizes, so you just get to be smart or well-read. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. The hobbit. See, we start easy. We start low. I want to bring you in. You know, I don't want to throw you off. All right, here's another one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. prejudice. I'm sorry, what was that, Matt? I I wasn't sure if that was that. You hadn't read it? No, I didn't know if you'd read Pride and Prejudice yet. Um, All right. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Jive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter. Well done. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. All right, see, everyone knows the first lines of very famous or more recently famous or maybe not famous in all kinds of books. Uh, We have, I think, the best first line of any book ever written. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things. This is how the story begins for us. And we thought we'd park here at the beginning of our series that, that the, the first words given about God, by God, from his revelation through the scriptures are about a God who creates. In the beginning, God. The story begins not about nature, The story begins not even about human beings, not about you and me. It begins about God. In the beginning, God. He is before all things. As the rest of the Bible teaches us, God exists and always has existed in a trinity, a community of three unified in one, in perfect connection, perfect delight, perfect love for one another. A God who's so delighted in its trinity that it wanted to invite others to participate. In creation, as we see God the Father speaking, we see the Word, Christ His Son, creating, and we see the Spirit hovering like a mother bird over the creation as it unfolds. In the beginning, God, all things begin and end 
with him. In the beginning, God created, not out of a scarcity, not because he was lonely or because he was bored, but in the beginning, God created because there was such an overflow, such an abundance of who he was within the community of the Trinity. There was so much that he wanted to invite others into it, that he wanted to create as an expression of who he was for his good pleasure. Out of his self-giving, goodness-sharing essence, God created. He made, he spoke out of nothing, something. The world came from a person there is an architect, a designer who loves and creates, who manifests himself in his blueprint to us in this here very first line of his word. Now, I'm not talking today about how God created. We're not going to get into the how so much. There's multiple different views. It's actually going to be the topic of Tuesday night's conversation, our That Stuff in the Bible conversation. So I invite you to tune into that. But this morning, I'm not talking about how God created, but that he created. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What God created was everything. Everything, heavens and earth, the all-encompassing language of the Old Testament. Uh, Paul picks this up in Colossians and says, just in case we may have missed it, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, the, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So what does this mean? This means that as creator, God is sovereign over everything he's created. In other words, he's in charge over everything that he's made. Genesis, Genesis 1 begins the conversation by letting us know that all things have been made by him and inferred in that is that all things belong to him, including his creation, including you and me. It says that all things are by him and through him and for him. That, that means that all of you is by him and through him and for him. Your, your children by him and through him and for him. Like the house you live in is by him and through him and for him. Your health, I don't know how you're feeling today, but by him and through him and for him. All things have been created by him and through him and for him. This is a book about him. It begins talking about him as the one to whom all belong and to whom all things belong. The first line of the Bible, God lays claim to everything, period. But here's what's amazing. He's a good God who's laying claim to everything. He's a, he's a God who is not just good, but that everything he makes is good. It screams it in the entirety of the remainder of chapter 1. We see that God created good and blessed it. Six times in Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God saw that it was good. 
and God saw that it was good, and, and he, he spoke, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, and it was good, and it's, it's, a, it's a refrain of blessing. He's declaring a good word over what he has made. It's not like, huh, is it good? Oh, it's good. No, 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 no. It's, it is good. I declare it, so I bless it. I speak a good word on it. He said that it was good. And then, of course, in verse 31, we have the, the climax, the culmination of the whole chapter. It says, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It was very good. So what does this mean for us? It means that the goodness of creation, it, it frees us to enjoy creation. It frees us to steward creation without becoming enslaved to the pleasures of creation. That's the invitation of God, that we were made to enjoy creation, that, that, that creation declared good is an affirmation of the goodness of the material world. It means that the chairs you're sitting in are good. That God makes what is good. That, that the material world is, not, world is not something to be escaped from or to be overcome or to, to get past so you can get into the real thing, you know, the spiritual thing. No, that God has woven himself into that which is real matter because matter matters to him. God created a good world and called it good, which means that this world that he has made is the context, the very setting in which you and I get to experience the progress of redemption and transformation and work that he has for us. It's in this world, in this context, with this air that we get to experience him and live him out. This is the context of our delighting in him. It also means that God has made good things for our enjoyment. He has made them for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17 holds that great tension between enjoyment and not being enslaved to it. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to, listen, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. Oh, wait, it's not over. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If it was just, hey, listen, he provides you with everything. You got it. Like, hey, stale bread and, you know, a cup of water. No, no, like God provides us with everything to enjoy that God has created. He has filled his world for his creatures to enjoy it. That's the heart of the creator God that we have. That's who he declares himself to be. So we get to enjoy his beauties and pleasures and even the comforts. They are from God. They're out of his creation heart, his good heart. All Timothy, all Paul's saying to Timothy is just don't set your hopes on it. Don't set your hopes on that. Set your hopes on him so that whether you have it, you get to say amen, the Lord is good. And if it is absent, the Lord is good and amen. God has made all things for us to enjoy. It also means that God's creation being good, culminating in the creation of mankind, affirms the dignity of men and women in a way that nothing else can. That there's a vision of the, of the preciousness of mankind in this cosmic movement of creation that God has. 
Listen to verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let, let us make man in our image. Let us give him real identity, identity grounded in us. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us, let us give him glory. Let us give him weight. He's, he's like us. He's got, some, he's got gravitas because of us, because of who we are, because it comes from God. And let him have dominion. Let him, let him have purpose. I have purpose. There's a good purpose that God has provided. And verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then it says, and God blessed them. God, good word on them. He blessed them. And he says, be fruitful, multiply. I have a good purpose for you. And it's, and it's going to be to fill the world and to, and to be co-creators, co-regents. You're going to be regents of the things that I have with you. I have a good plan, a good purpose for you. In this way, the Bible, I believe, offers the most salient rationale to human rights, to the value of human life, to the dignity and honor of all people, regardless of age or sex or creed or religion or disability, nationality. People matter because they are made in God's image. People matter because they are made in God's image. C.S. Lewis would talk about that. We, you don't meet mere mortals. There's no such thing. And we're made we meet image bearers. He says, and by the way, if you saw us, if we saw each other in all the reality of our glory, like Psalm 8 just pointed out, which we'll talk about in a second, like we'd be tempted to worship. There's something so grand about the image of God, the glory of God that's manifested in human beings. So we treat each other with that kind of dignity. Our faith holds that supreme right here on the first page of the book. So we treat people in light of that in light of ultimate dignity and ultimate value. No one takes that from it. No one, no one gives that to us. We offer it to the world. We continue to offer it to the world today. So there's this grand vision of, of God. And, there, and yet at the same time, there's this, there's this sense of like the tiny minuteness of mankind. As you read through the page of Genesis chapter 1, you realize, you realize all these grand things are happening. And then... God gets his hands in the dirt and there's this tiny working, this small segregated work with Adam and with Eve, chapter 2. We read Psalm 8 a second ago. But listen to the dichotomy, the, the, the tension of a creator God and his creature, right? His creature. It says that when I look at the heavens, we read the works of his fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you have made, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. How, how, can, how can I matter at all? I'm so puny and tiny. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The capstone of creation was the image of God manifested in men. So we have a robust theology of, of creation that the story begins with a good God who infuses a good creation with good purposes. That's the story of, that's the story of our faith. That's the beginning of our book. That's the narrative that's going to project itself into all the future pages that a good God built a good world and infused it with good purpose. And everything that will follow will be the sad reality of what happens when we don't follow him. 
not everything. So that's the theology of creation. But honestly, some of my desire, I was talking with the preaching team, my, my desire with, with Genesis chapter 1 was, was actually a, a longing to, to re-enchant creation. For those of you who have been reading the Bible for a long time or have been in church a long time, potentially it's gotten dull and dusty a little bit. That, that you read Genesis chapter 1, you're like, right, right, it kind of repeats itself, third day, fourth day, and it was good, sweet, okay. Chapter 2 gets a little bit more interesting maybe because, you know, you got some action and then it gets, the mess shows up and it's like, oh, wow, this is happening. This is. But Genesis chapter 1, the, the beauty of this narrative, the magnitude, even though short-lived in, in the number of pages of the scripture, the beauty of creation being something that God longs to reinvigorate, the purity and goodness, that, that the story starts with the overflow and bounty of a creator God. And so I thought I would, I would get some help from, um, from my buddy C.S. Lewis, um, who, who wrote, he wrote obviously the Chronicles of Narnia with many of you are, f are familiar with, uh, but the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is not The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but the magician's nephew captures a scene where we actually experience something that's almost a prologue to, or sorry, almost a, a mirror of the prologue, which is John chapter one of the creation of the world. And we, and we hear Aslan creating the world. Now to set this up, um, Diggory and Polly are, are two kids, a boy and a girl who found themselves transported through a portal, we'll just call it that, into this world. And they brought with them his, Diggory's uncle and this sorceress, evil sorceress. It's a long story about how she gets there, so we'll leave that aside, but she's bad news. Um, in general, if you're an evil sorceress, you're never the protagonist. Um, but, uh, and they find themselves arriving in this world. They got like a little motley crew of additional people, like a London cabbie, who's just your ordinary cabbie. I guess all cabbies are maybe ordinary, and they find themselves arriving in this new world, but they're not really arriving in a world. They're arriving in a world that's in the space of, in the beginning of what seems like maybe creation. And when they arrive, it's dark. There is nothing. There's no light. There's no wind. There's no stars. There's no sound. In essence, it's like verse 2, Narnia was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So this little crew arrives, they're looking around and they can't see anything because it's dark and C.S. Lewis begins to write. And he says, it may be helpful, now just close your eyes, take the story in, let God enchant your heart. In the darkness, Lewis writes, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined with other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher in scale, cold, tingly, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leapt out. If you had seen and heard it, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. 
The voice on the earth was now louder, more triumphant, but the voices in the sky, after singing loudly with it for a time, began to get fainter. Far away and down near the horizon, the sky began to turn gray. A light wind, very fresh, began to stir. The sky in that one place grew slowly and steadily paler. You could see shapes of hills standing up in the dark against it. All the time, the voice went on singing. The eastern sky changed from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. Diggory had never seen such a sun. You could imagine that it laughed for joy as it came up. And as its beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. It was a valley through which a broad, swift river wound its way, flowing eastward towards the sun. Southward, there were mountains. Northward, there were low hills. But it was a valley of mere earth rock and water. There was not a tree, not a bush, not a blade of grass to be seen. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright. It stood facing the risen sun. Its mouth was wide open. Its song, it was about 300 yards away, and it was, it was walking and sang the valley. And as it was walking and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. Soon there were other things besides grass. The slope grew dark with heather, and, and when it burst into rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. But now the song had once more changed. It was more like what you would call a, a tune but it was also far wilder. It made you want to run and jump and climb. Showers of birds came out of the trees. Butterflies fluttered. Bees got to work on the flowers as if they hadn't a second to lose. And now you can hardly hear the song of the lion. There was so much cawing and cooing, crowing, braying, neighing, baying, barking, lowing, bleeding and trumpeting. Then there came a swift flash like a fire, but it didn't burn anybody. Either from the sky or from the lion itself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake. Love, think, Speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. I don't think there's been a time where we have read that alone or have read that with my kids and I haven't begun to cry as my body shivers. It's this vivid picture of the world coming alive at the voice of the Lord. 
I don't know if it enchants your heart, if it brings some of what the pictures, as C.S. Lewis is trying to use all the means he knows how, trying to bring vitality and life and vividness to, to this beautiful creation narrative. If it's like, but if you're like me, one of the things that happens when I read it is that something else emerges. Like there's an ache. There's this, there's this longing. As a matter of fact, the, the cabbie who is standing there as this is all happening, he says, he says, he says, glory be. And then he says, I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known that there were things like this. That's what happens. There's this ache. There's this longing like something is not right. You maybe have experienced it. Like I love mountains. So when I find myself in Colorado in the Rockies and I'm climbing or even just driving around, there's something that, that just aches in me. I'm delighting it but, it. but there's an ache as though I want to be inside something I can't quite get inside of. Do you know what I'm talking about? Years ago, Becky and I went to see, um, went to see uh, the, 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 the uh, musical Cats. Actually, heard with the Fox. And... Um, I know it's cats, so people joke about cats, but animals, you know, creation. It's a real thing. The woman who sang the song Memories, we were just sitting there, and she began to sing. And if you know, if you know the tune, it, it just kept swelling and swelling. And I just remember sitting there going like, I never want you to stop singing. Like something about what you were inviting and calling me into made me long to be inside the tune, inside the song. I just didn't want it to end. It was taking me somewhere. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's, that's what creation makes us long for. If we really peer into it, if we really look at it, it makes us realize that it's not so anymore. But that we're made for it, that we long for it, that we crave it. That there's this gap that we're that we're longing to see it be. Oh, oceans and poems and pieces of art. The Apostle Paul captures it a little bit in Romans chapter 8. He says, for, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now because of what happens in chapter 3 and all the subsequent realities of chap from chapter 3 on in the fall. All of creation is groaning with the chains of pains of childbirth until now. Listen to verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Loved ones, friends, we, we long... We, we ache, we ache to be inside that thing because we long and we were made for the blessing. We were made for there and God saw that it was good. And God saw, we were made for that. That's how we were made, it's what we're made into. It's what we're longing for. And yet we don't know it. And some of us have never known it. But we're longing for the blessing. We're longing for the good word from the Lord. We stand on the outside of it. Can't get quite inside of it. And what Genesis invites us to look into is to say that there's something deeply good that God has made and made us for. That he's made a way home. He's made a way home in the midst of that longing, in the midst of that desire, in the midst of that ache. And he's done so by taking the, the good word that belonged to his son we read it earlier, right? 
John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him. There's nothing that was made that was not made by him. It says, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. That's the, that's the reality that the Word, the, spoke, the speaking of the Lord, which was Christ himself who fashioned the world. All things were made by him. Nothing was made that wasn't made by him. That he came... It says the word became flesh, right? Dwelt among us. That word which spoke the world into being came to be with us. And it says that we treated him as though we didn't know him, though the entire world was made by him. No wonder there's ache. He says that he came in, he experienced all of that ache, the absence of the blessing, received the blessing from the Father, and then took it and gave it to us as he hung on the cross. That's the story of the Bible. That's how we get from Genesis 1 to the cross all the way to the end when there's recreation. Is that we have a hope that because of the one, the one who deserved the blessing, who earned the blessing, the good word from the Father, the, the perfect man, the, the right creation, the, it is very good that he took that and he made, gave it to you and to me. And so that's how, when we find ourselves in the middle of the ache, in the middle of looking at the, sun, at the sun, sunrise or the sunset or the mountain or this poem or the song, and we find ourselves just on the outside of something, it invites us to long because there is one who is inviting us into that beauty and purity and, it, and it's coming and it's made possible. And so what he invites us to live in is hope. And it's what, this is what's amazing. This is what we offer the world is that we can read Genesis 1 and go like a good God started the whole thing for good. And we made a mess of it. I made a mess of it this week. What about you? And I long to be inside the beauty. I long to be inside of it. And, and I'm always just a couple steps on the outside of it. But God comes as the word of blessing and receives the curse for you and me. So that one day, you and I can be reborn into something that even today we couldn't even recognize. That's the hope of creation, Genesis chapter 1, that takes us to Revelation chapter 21 with Jesus center at the middle saying, this is how you can look at it all and hold it together because it holds together in me. And that's the hope of Jesus for you today. And I don't know if you don't know him, if you've always been on the outside of hope, if you've always... He has good news for you. He has a good word for you. He says, come, come to me. He says, anyone who will receive him, to him he gives the right to be son and daughter. You know what Paul calls sons and daughters? New creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, new creatures. You've been remade in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. I love ones. If you know Jesus, that's the truest thing about you right now is that you've been remade in Jesus, which is why Jesus invites you to the table. He says, come to this meal. Like, I'm the one who created all things, right? I'm the one who, in my first miracle, turned water into wine because I'm a feasting kind of God. I'm a celebration, beauty-making kind of God. He invites you to the table, and he says, I want you to remember me. I want you to look on me every time that ache and that pain and the outside of the thing emerges. And I want you to hope because of what I've done in the future that is available and promised to you. That's what you stand on today. That's what you get to walk out of here with. That's what you get to offer the world. The kingdom is near in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.